بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيك ما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد الحمد لله This is session 8 in module 5 covering the fiqh of salat and we're coming to the end of this session. This is spanning, well, we're now at two months. So we'll probably finish this up in the next session after tonight. And in module five, covering the fiqh of prayer, out of all of the sessions, this one is probably the most complicated of them all. And that's because it addresses issues that are usually confusing to a lot of people, particularly the, in the area of sajdatu sahu, or the prostration of forgetfulness, what you do when you forget something, when you omit something, or you add too much. That area is sometimes confusing for people. That's what we want to cover tonight. After that, coming next week, it's relatively straightforward issues that we cover in our Fardain. And as a reminder to myself and to all of you, this is individually obligatory knowledge, meaning this is not extracurricular Islam. This is not inspiring talks and stories, things that you don't have to know. These are all details that we have to know. Even if not everything is obligatory in and of itself, to know how these things work is obligatory so that our prayers are valid insha'Allah ta'ala. So, so far, if we go and trace our steps on this journey of learning the fardain in salat, we've learned the conditions for the obligation of prayer. So, Islam, maturity, and sanity. We then learn the cause for the obligation of prayer, meaning the entrance of its time the conditions for the validity of prayer. And we said that conditions are external to the prayer. And the things that are internal to the prayer are known as pillars. And so we covered the pillars of the prayer, the arkan, and the obligations, the wajibat, as well as the sunnas. We talked about the reasons for some of the differences we see between people in how they pray, why some people pray with the hands here or there. Uh, and we looked at the basis for all of those practices, all of which are based on legitimate differences based on ijtihad among the ulama. We then looked at the adab of prayer, what invalidates the prayer, what is disliked to do in the prayer, what is permissible in prayer. And finally, we talked a little bit about how one may break the prayer if they have to break it for whatever reason. So we've covered all of those things so far, alhamdulillah. And what we want to cover tonight are four matters. The witter prayer, the prayer of the traveler, the emphasized sunnah prayers, and the prostration of forgetfulness. So we've saved the, the hardest for last. So these are the four things we want to cover tonight. Now, in the legal school of Imam Madik, 
and Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the witr prayer is a highly emphasized sunnah. It's not seen as obligatory, wajib. However, in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, which is the basis for this program, the witr prayer is seen as wajib. But we have to remember that distinction within the school of Imam Abu Hanifa between what is fard and what is wajib. There is a distinction there. That distinction is not found in the other schools in their respective usul. So this is when we hear wajib according to the Hanafi school, it shouldn't be confused for wajib according to the other schools. They're not using wajib in the same way the other schools use wajib. So in the previous lessons, we've covered everything to do with the actual form of the prayer, how you pray, and the different degrees of actions and things in the prayer. Now we're looking at not the structure of the prayer itself, but at certain types of prayers or issues that arise that affect how we offer those prayers. So the prayer of the traveler is the same prayer as the person who's resident. It's same, you have the same rak'ahs, the same things you're reading in prayer. All of the ahkam that apply to how you perform it will be the same whether you're resident or traveler. But there's an issue with traveling a certain difference in terms of the number of rak'ahs, for instance. So looking at the witr prayer, it is wajib in the Hanafi school and an emphasized sunnah in the other schools. And the proof within the Hanafi school for the wujub, the obligation as they see it for witr, is the constant prophetic practice as well as certain narrations which indicate that it's wajib. Uh, and this is a kind of an usuli discussion about how they derive that proof. But we have hadith, for instance, where the Prophet ﷺ says, He gives it as a command. Pray the witr, O people of the Qur'an. So the basic default is that when there's a command, Al-amr al-wujub. The command indicates obligation unless there's some other proof to indicate that it's not an obligation. We have the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says, the witr is a duty, so he who does not observe it is not from us. فَلَيْسَ minna. So this is kind of a threat. So this is an indication, according to the Hanafi scholars, that it is wajib. Now, the form of the witr prayer in the Hanafi school is, to keep it simple, just think, on the surface, it looks exactly like the Maghrib prayer. That's all you really have to know. That plus how to do qunut. Just say to yourself, witr in the Hanafi school is exactly like the Maghrib prayer in terms of how you pray it and the tashahud and so on. There are other ways within other schools, but in the Hanafi school, it consists of three rak'ahs prayed together in a single prayer with one set of salams. Right? And it's recommended, according to some hadith, in the witr prayer to recite in the first rak'ah, Sabbihis Marabbika al-A'la, Surah al-A'la, 
and in the second rak'ah, Surah Al-Kafirun, and in the third rak'ah, Surah Al-Ikhlas. It's recommended. In the third rak'ah, before you go into ruku'ah, you look at me, I'm, I'm raising my hands. You don't raise your hands in the Hanafi school. But in the third rak'ah, before you go into ruku'ah, you are to do what is called the qunut. The qunut. And the qunut is basically a dua. It is a devotional dua. Uh, qunut comes from the Arabic word that means devout dedication or devotion. Uh, right? The qanit is mentioned in the Quran. So the qunut is a kind of dua. And after, before you go into ruku', you recite the qunut, and that is after you recite the surah, before you go into ruku'. Uh, after you recite the surah, as you're doing the qunut, you raise the hands to the level of the ears and say Allahu Akbar and read the qunut. So there's different ways of doing it in the other schools. So basically, you say you're praying in the third rak'ah, you recited the Fatiha and the, the, another chapter, say Surah Ikhlas. According to the Hanafi school, you're raising the hands to the level of the ears, you say Allahu Akbar and supplicate with the Qunut, and then you go into Ruku' and you complete your prayer. Now this is how the Hanafi school does it. In the other schools, it's a little bit different. For instance, in the Shafi'i school and in the Maliki school, we do the Qunut in Fajr and not in Witr. Right? And that Qunut is silent. And the Imam is usually doing it in the Masjid uh, or the person praying by themselves is doing it silently before Rukur. In the Maliki school, it's before Rukur, although there is a position that could be after, uh, if one forgot. But that's in Fajr for the Shafi'is and Madikis. But for the Hanafis, it's in the Witr and not in the Fajr. So there is a dua for Qunut that is transmitted in the Hadith. And there's a few different wordings of this dua. But the wording preferred and mentioned uh, in the Hanafi legal literature is this dua. So we're not going to read the whole thing and translate it. But no matter what you're doing here, you need to make sure that you're memorizing these du'as, right? So, praying the witr, if you're doing the qunut, you need to know this du'a. But let's say you're working with it. You know, you have a hard time memorizing. It takes you a while. What do you do? Well, if you have not memorized the qunut for whatever reason, then they say that instead of that, you say three times, Allahumma ighfirli, Allahumma ighfirli, Allahumma ighfirli. Oh Allah, forgive me. Or you say the du'a, the du'a within the ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adhab al-nar. So these are alternatives for the person who hasn't memorized that du'a. Because if you look at the du'a, it is it's a little bit lengthy. And for someone who hasn't encountered it, it may take them a little while to memorize that. But they work for it. They memorize it, inshaAllah. Now, Let's say you come to the masjid and you're praying behind someone who is in Fajr reading the Qunut. So this is someone who's doing it according to the Shafi'i way or the Maliki way. They don't have Qunut in Witr, they have Qunut in Fajr. 
you are behind them and they're doing the qunut. You don't normally do the qunut and fajr. What do you do? Well, the fuqaha say that you perform it with the imam silently with your hands by your side. So what you'll see, and I, I know you've all noticed this, you have salat in jama'ah and the imam, like this happened I think last week with the khatam. This happened with the khatam last week. Uh, in the khatam, in the prayer at the last rak'ah, there was a dua. And you may have noticed that a lot of people raised their hands and then there were people who didn't raise their hands. Both of those are fine. But in the Hanafi school, if you're praying behind someone reading the qunut and they raise their hands, you still keep your hands by your side and you keep silent. It's absolutely fine. You do it in this way. Because your qunut is in witr, your qunut is not in fajr, but you're still behind the imam, so you're following him. So let's say you, as a Hanafi, you're praying your, your, your qunut, sorry, your uh, witr, and before you go to bed, and you're tired, and you're so tired that you forgot to do the qunut. And you realized while you're in ruku' that you forgot your qunut. Do you rise back up, Sami'allahu liman hamida, and then recite the qunut? The answer is no. You rise from ruku' Sami'allahu liman hamida, Rabbana lakal hamd. You continue with the rest of your prayer. You come to the end, and then you do your prostration of forgetfulness. So in the Hanafi school, if you forget qunut, you have to do the prostration of forgetfulness. And we're going to talk about that at the end, how we do that. So those are the basic issues for the witr and the qunut. And in the next class, next week, when we talk about makeup prayers, qada, we'll make mention of this point, that uh, qada would also include qada of missed witrs in the Hanafi school. Whereas in the others, it would just be the five fard. So having discussed that we now come to the prayer of the musafir salatul musafir the traveler so as we said we've already learned now the structure of the prayer how we do it the things that are pillars conditions obligations sunnas adab and so on and so forth now we're looking at certain conditions that may arise which may alter the way in which we perform the same prayer we just learned. One of them is the prayer of the traveler. Now, it is from the mercy of Allah Ta'ala that in the Sharia He gave to the Prophet Sallallahu the traveler has certain rukhas, certain dispensations, certain allowances that they can uh, take advantage of that they can avail themselves to that are not av available to a person who is resident right we mentioned in module 4 that if you're a traveler and you put on the khuf how long do you have to wipe over your khuf if you're traveling 72 hours if you're a resident you have how long 24 so the traveler has a certain rukhsa, a dispensation to make it easier for them on their journey. They can wipe over the socks for 72 hours. 
Likewise, if you're traveling, you are, if you're traveling in Ramadan, you can break your fast, even if you're not sick, even if you're not that tired. It's not necessarily advisable because, you know, it, it's just better often to just continue if it's not a hardship, so you don't have to make it up later. But if a person's traveling and they just don't feel like fasting, maybe they have a business meeting and they want to be fresh and focused and they're traveling, they can break their fast and have a coffee and there is no blame on them whatsoever. That is allowed to them. That's a rukhsa, a dispensation. If you're traveling as a man, it's not wajib on you to attend Jumu'ah. If you're traveling and it's Eid, you, it's not wajib for you to go to Eid. Does that mean you shouldn't? No, but you don't have to. Now in the other schools, the Shafi'i school, the Maliki school, the Hammari school, we would add traveling, uh, one of the rukhsas to traveling is the shortening prayer. But in the Hanafi school, they think a little bit differently about this issue. They don't say that, sh- that uh, uh, shortening the prayer is a rukhsa or dispensation for the person who is traveling. They say it's an obligation. Very different. So in the Hanafi school, they don't say when you're traveling at, at a certain distance for a certain period of time, uh, it is a dispensation where you're allowed to shorten your prayers. They say, no, you must shorten your prayers as long as you fulfill those conditions. So this is something unique to the uh, Hanafi school. They see it as an azima, as a stricture and not a, a ruhsa. So there's a lot of questions that come up with regards to travel and what constitutes travel that would allow one to shorten the prayer. And we should talk about that. Of course, as always, there's differences of opinion among the fuqaha about these details. But within the Hanafi school, the view transmitted is that the least distance for travel for these rulings to take effect is 48 miles, which is around 77 kilometers. Meaning, for you to shorten your prayers while on a journey, that journey has to go at 48 miles and beyond. If it's less than that, you're not considered a traveler. You're still a resident, albeit on the road. So this doesn't mean that you have to have a GPS tracker and you have it right down to the foot, okay? Where you say, well, I'm 47 miles and 5,000 feet. I can't shorten my prayer. It's not that exact. You're, it's, all, it's always approximation. And the question people ask is, how did they determine it to be 48 miles? You know, why not 47? Why not 49? Is this an arbitrary number that people just came up with? And the answer is no. It is, like we said, an estimation. And the estimation is based on the pre-modern way of measuring distance. Now, there's lots of ways people would measure distance in the pre-modern period. And there's different terms they would use to describe distances, farasikh and so on. Uh, even the word mil for mile. But for travel in particular, it was described as three days journey by camel or foot 
for an average an average kind of land without uh, large mountains or barriers. So if you get on a camel and you ride at an average pace and you get off and walk a little bit and you take a break and you go and then you camp out and you do that for three days, that is the average distance at which you would be able to shorten your prayers. That's estimated as around 48 miles. Right, And they calculate it a little differently for when a person is on a boat or if they're in a mountainous area, but more or less it comes down to this general distance. And in the past, they would also describe how this would relate to a person leaving the Amsar, leaving the, the metropolis, you know, the city limits, and getting past the area of the city where you can no longer see it. So there's all these details. What concerns us is just making sure that we've gone about 48 miles, give or take, at which these ahkam take effect and were considered musafir. So when a person's left the city limits of their residence and they intend to travel to a place that they will reach at that distance or beyond, they shorten their four raka'ah prayers to two raka'ah prayers. What is this called? This is called qasr, shortening. There is this other thing that we call jama', which is gathering, where the person would pray dhuhr and asr back to back, or they would pray maghrib and isha back to back. That doesn't exist in the Hanafi school, except for the person who is at Hajj on the, the 9th of Dhul Hijjah and the 10th, right? At Arafah, Muzdarifah. That's when they shorten, that's it. And that's, sorry, that's when they shorten and gather. They don't do it any other time. But for the other schools, it's a little more lenient. Uh, if a person is uh, praying Dhuhr and Asr, two raka'ah Dhuhr, two raka'ah Asr, at Dhuhr time, and they're a traveler, or according to the other schools, that's valid. It's not always preferable, but it's valid. But in the Hanafi school, you couldn't do that. Likewise, you wouldn't be praying Maghrib and Isha together with Maghrib prayed fully, and then Isha as two rakahs. You wouldn't do that. Although in the other schools, that would be valid. Uh, I'm not sure how it is in the Shafi school, but in the Maliki school, this shortening and gathering is only preferable when you're on the road, on the journey itself. And praying each prayer in its own time would cause a delay in the trip, right? This means that if you have, if you're on the road and let's say you're in, in transit somewhere in an airport and you have a four hour layover and you have time to pray dhuhr at dhuhr and asr and asr, it wouldn't really be needed for you to gather between the two and pray them back to back. Because you could pray dhuhr and then you could pray asr two and two. Right? Anyhow, uh, this shortening, we said, is considered wajib in the Hanafi school. It's not seen as a, a rukhsa. It's an azima. Once a person reaches a city or a location and they intend to stay there for at least 15 full days, 
they must complete the four rak'ah obligatory prayers rather than shortening them. This is important to note. It's not an open-ended thing where as long as you're out away from home traveling somewhere, you just shorten your prayers for the entire duration of your trip. If that trip is for 15 days or longer, you are considered like a resident and you resort back to the default which is praying each prayer in its particular time as four rak'ahs, right? If you're staying at a place for 13 days, 10 days, 12 days, even 14, you continue shortening your prayers, that's fine. But if it's 15 or longer, you go back to your, the norm, which is four rak'ahs for those prayers. Now the journey of the traveler is going to end on entering the city limits of his normal place of residence. Or when he makes an intention of staying at another town for 15 days or more, if one intends to remain less than 15 days, or does not intend his length of stay, and remains longer without a fixed intention, and not knowing when he will depart, he may continue to shorten the prayers. This one, uh, I want to give you an example for this one. I, I believe it was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. He was traveling north in Azerbaijan. It's a very well-known athar from him. And he's musafir. And on the way back, it began to snow. Imagine how it was back then before there were roads. If you get snowed in in a mountainous region, you're stuck. So he didn't go there intending to settle. He wants to go, but he's prevented. But he's not sure when the snow is going to melt and when he's going to be able to get back on the road to get home. And during that entire period until the snow melted, he was shortening his prayers. And this is used as a proof to indicate, this is how the Sahaba understood the issue, that if you know you're here 15 days or longer, you go back to the norm. Right, four rakahs for Dhuhr and Asr and Isha. But if you intend to stay less than 15 days, or you don't have a particular intention, like you're not staying 14 or 10 or 20, you're just, you're, you're passing through, you're not sure how long you're going to be there, and you're remaining longer, such as being stuck, and you don't have a fixed intention, and you're not sure when you're leaving, you can actually continue the shortening of the prayers for as long as that issue remains. This is very unlikely to ever happen to anyone, but it's there. Let's look at a couple of scenarios, common scenarios. Let's take Zaid, this imaginary figure, Zaid. Now Zaid is from New York City, and he's boarding a flight from JFK to London. So at JFK, is he, is he considered a traveler at JFK? No, because he's from New York City. So he's going on a flight from JFK to London. And he intends to remain in London for 17 days. As a traveler, he's shortening his prayers on his way to London. So presumably while he's on the flight, whatever prayers are happening, or if there's any transit and he's praying, he's shortening those prayers. Once he arrives in London, 
he's going to discontinue that shortening. He's going to go back to the norm of praying the prayers in the full four rak'ahs. Why? Because he intended to stay longer than 15 days. If, let's say he was going for 12 days. If he's going for 12 days, anything less than 15, he'll shorten his prayers for the duration of the trip. Right? And on his way back to JFK, he'll shorten his prayers and that will discontinue once he arrives at JFK. Because being in JFK, he's back in his city. So that rule about shortening no longer applies once he's returned to his home city, his residence. Let's take the example of Khalid. Now Khalid, he intends to stay in Mecca and Medina for 20 days. But he doesn't specify his residence at one of the two locations. Let's just say, uh, let's say he's a, he's a free agent. He's not, he's not with a group. He's going for, for Umrah and Ziyara, and he's booking his own hotels. All he has is a return ticket back to JFK. So he arrives in Mecca. He wants to go to Mecca and Medina. The ticket is for 20 days. He's going to be 20 days in the Hijaz. But he hasn't specified how long he's going to stay in Mecca or Medina. If you look at the number 20, that's beyond 15. But he hasn't specified where he's going to stay. Is he going to stay five days here or and then uh, 15 days here? Is it going to be eight days here and then seven days there? He hasn't specified, even though it's 20 days in total that he's gone on his journey. In this case, because he hasn't specified, he'll shorten the prayers even though he's traveling longer than 15 days. Once he specifies, things may change. Because let's say he decides to do four days in Mecca and then the uh, remaining 16 days in Medina. He's traveling, intending to be in the city of Medina for 16 days. He goes back to praying the prayers in the normal length. Okay, next issue. If a traveler offers prayer behind a resident imam, the traveler follows the imam and completes the four rakahs. I think this is pretty basic. You know, when a person is behind the imam, they're following the imam all the way through. If you're a traveler and it's dhuhr, Praying dhuhr by yourself is two rakahs. But if you're praying behind an imam who's resident, you're not going to go into the second rakah and then cut out with your own salams while the rest of the jama'ah f- finishes dhuhr. You don't do that. You get up with the imam and you go through all four. That's absolutely fine. And the reverse is also true. It's valid, it's permissible for a traveler to lead people in salat who are resident. But you have to be mindful of people and try to prevent any possible confusion from arising. Uh, I'm sure this has happened to some of you. You go somewhere and there's a person leading the salat and they are a traveler. You're a resident. You've you've come to pray dhuhr. This person prays two rak'ahs and gives salams and 
what's going on here. That person should notify people. Uh, they can do it after the taslim, right? Nahnu uh, ala safar or something like Nahnu musafirun. Atimu salatakum bisafar. You can say different things in Arabic or whatever language to notify the people that you are a traveler as an imam and they should complete their, the rest of their uh, salat. Um, one issue that a lot of people don't think about is what happens if you're traveling and as a musafir you can shorten your prayers, you're traveling and let's say you're on the way back. So on the road, on the way back home, you're driving, you're still traveling, and you forget to pray Asr. Well, let's say you forget to pray Dhuhr, that's better. You forget to pray Dhuhr. You get back home, you walk in the front door, and you realize, oh, I didn't pray Dhuhr, and it's now Asr time. What do you do? You miss dhuhr, so whatever you do, that dhuhr is qada, it's makeup for a missed dhuhr. However, because it was obligatory, the time was in as you were on a journey, you're going to pray it as two rak'ahs even though you're home. So you come in the door, you realize I missed dhuhr, which happened hours ago when I was on the road. You make the intention of qada, of makeup. You pray the dhuhr as two rak'ahs and then you're going to pray your asr normally because that came in as you were making your way into the, your, your residence. So, you know, some, there's some, some of these areas are sometimes confusing for people. And inshallah, we have any, uh, any questions, we can address them bithnillahi ta'ala. Um, maybe we'll take those now and see. Are there any questions about travel? Well, if you can't if you can't pray standing on in the airplane, you just pray sitting, right? Okay. You have that option, yes. Yeah, and you, yeah, it would be two because that was wajib when you were on the road, so you are praying it as the two rakas, and the intention is a makeup. Uh, but in this case, I mean, you don't. If, you, if a person prayed on the airplane sitting down and they did not have the ability to pray standing, otherwise they would, and they pray sitting down, uh, they don't have to make up those prayers, right? It's, it's valid in the Hanafi school for sure. Uh, so you wouldn't need to do that, but you, you could if you, يعني, to avoid the difference of opinion, one could do that, that option's available. Raise your voice. Truck truck drivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't matter how often you take the journey, right? There are people who, like a common fatwa, a common question put to mashayikh. Person A is studying in a university that is. 57 miles away from their home and they go there four days a week and they go back to their parents home are they shortening their prayers every time they're there even though they're there week after week 
The answer is yes, because um, unless they have a dorm and they're living there, right? This, we're assuming they're there temporarily and their actual home is somewhere else. For a truck driver, it's even clearer because they're on the road. So it doesn't matter how often they're on the road, they're not fixed in any one place. So as long as they're in that state, they're in a state of travel. If a person is traveling from point A to point B and they're staying in point B for 15 days or more, that's when they resume praying normally with four rakahs. Uh, for the air, for the, same thing for the pilots, right? It doesn't matter how often it happens. Yeah. The same applies to if you're traveling for work each day. Yeah. And it's outside of that. Yeah, you don't, you don't live at work. You know, if your office, uh, I, know of, I know of people, uh, you know, I know of people who are taking, driving 50 miles one way. So every day at work, they're actually considered a musafir. They don't live at work. They don't live in that town. They don't have a home, a second home in that town. So, you know, most people who are doing that, they're not actually shortening their prayers. But the option is there. And in the Hanafi school, you should. You should be, if that's the case. Even if you're there five days a week, it doesn't matter. Because the hukum is you are a traveler because you fit that cr those conditions. Yeah. The question, because a lot of times people do it, is like they start shortening or they start like uh, combining prayers before even leaving house because they're all this, this after, so they're like, they feel at home and they start taking this rukhsah because they're on the Travel a few hours. Yeah, you gotta at least leave leave the city limits. Yeah. Yeah. There's some discussion about whether you could do it once you've left the city limits, and a lot of these airports are outside of the city limits, even though they're not at 48 miles. But you, you should be covering that distance before you start applying this. For the other madahib, it's the Rukhsa, or the Hanafis, it's the Azima. Either way, you want to fulfill these conditions. Yeah. If a person is in an occupation where, let's say, Maghrib comes in, and it's dangerous for them to leave and perform Maghrib, is, it, is that um, frowned upon? Is this the person traveling? Um, or their resident? So what, what's the question again? That it depends on what you mean by dangerous. So unless unless you want to specify. Yeah, it's still a bit ambiguous. Yeah, you, it's still ambiguous because we have to define what is the threat and what other means may be there to allow the person to offer the prayer still within the time while having someone else keep watch. I think that's a little too specific for the general Q&A. Those kinds of specific questions require a lot more detail to look into the specifics of the person's situation. But uh, feel free to fill me in later if you want. Inshallah. Khair. Um, any questions on the sister side? Okay. Yes. Uh, 
Can you repeat the question? They're not a resident anymore. Yeah. Whether you were born there or not, the question is not your ties to that place historically. The question is, are you a resident or a traveler? If you are a resident, maybe you have multiple residents. Maybe you got it like that, where you have, you know, you have a, you have a beach house in Malibu, maybe. If, if that's your house, and you know, you live there too, sure. But if just because you were born there doesn't mean it remains your residence forever. Your residence is where you live, right? So if you're there for... You could own it, but is it, is it a place that you live in for any significant amount of time? Ownership doesn't define your residence status. No, no. It, you, if you're living there, or you have multiple residences, sure. But if it's just a property, or if it's a, like she mentions, a, her birthplace, that doesn't confer on it a status of, of residence in and of itself. Okay, so we have two issues here. The sunnah prayers and the sajdah sahu, the prostration of forgetfulness. And uh, I'm a little worried about that last one tonight. We may have to postpone that for next week because it's kind of all or nothing. If I go a quarter ways into it and the adhan for Isha goes, it won't be good. <laughs> so now we come to the sunnah prayers. Why are we talking about sunnah prayers? Isn't this about fardain, things that are obligatory for us to know? Well, we have to know about the sunnah prayers, especially in the Hanafi school. Because in the Hanafi school, the sunnah mu'akkada, the highly emphasized sunnahs, have a legal status that is very serious. And leaving them habitually is sinful. Therefore, to avoid that sin, we need to know what they are and how they're maintained. So there's different kinds of sunnah prayers. There are the highly emphasized, the sunnah mu'akkada, highly emphasized prayers. There are the recommended mandu, mustahab prayers that aren't at the same degree of emphasis. And then you have more open-ended nafil prayers that are voluntary prayers. Then you have specific sunnah prayers that aren't highly emphasized, but encouraged. Regardless of the type, the general wisdom behind the sunnah prayers is that the sunnah prayers repair and mend what is deficient in the obligatory prayer. The sunnah prayers are mending and repairing the inattentiveness and the lack of focus and presence that we have in the fard prayer. So wherever those gaps are, the sunnah prayers come to, short, to support them and mend it and make it better. Now these emphasized sunnah prayers are called mu'akkada, emphasized, because they are very close to the ruling of wajib. In the Hanafi school, these are very close to being wajib especially regard, with regard to sin or the sinfulness of omitting them. Because in the Hanafi school, 
if something is a highly emphasized sunnah and a person omits it purposely and persistently and without excuse, this entails blame and sin. That is not the case with all of the other madhahib. It's still blameworthy to an extent if a person does that constantly and purposely, but we're not going to say the person is alsi, is disobedient or uh, muthnib, you know, or sinful. But in the Hanafi school, these are very much emphasized. Uh, and this is why you will notice the difference between the, if you go to the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, and the masajid that have uh, subcontinental majorities. The attention given to the sunnah prayers tends to be much higher than in other parts of the world that are on different madhahib. Where yes, there are sunnah prayers, of course, but they don't have the same degree of emphasis where, as you do in the Hanafi school. So uh, what are these? In the Hanafi school, the emphasized sunnah prayers are divided into two. Those that are two rak'ahs and those that are four rak'ahs. The two rak'ah emphasized sunnah prayers are the ones before fajr. The two rak'ahs before fajr. And these are the most emphasized out of all of the sunnah prayers. The most emphasized. After that, you have the two rak'ahs after dhuhr, the two rak'ahs after maghrib, and the two rak'ahs after isha. These are the ones that are emphasized as two rak'ah prayers. Then you have those that are four rak'ah prayers which are highly emphasized. Those before dhuhr, the ones before the Friday prayer, and those after the Friday prayer. So, if you're doing all of these, count them up. Two, four, six, eight, 10 and 12, 14 and 16, 18 and 20. That's if it's a Friday, or if it's not a Friday, but if you can't take away Dhuhr and just look at Jumu'ah, you have how many? 16 or 18, anyhow. You have a lot. So these are emphasized. Now for the four rak'ah prayers, the, the, when we say four rak'ahs, we don't mean two rak'ahs, assalamu alaikum, then another two rak'ahs, methan and methan and two and two. We actually mean four with one salam. So there's, it's, it's like dhuhr, right? It's not separated as two rak'ahs and two rak'ahs. So before dhuhr or before jumrah and after jumrah. These are the highly emphasized prayers, uh, sunnah prayers. The non-emphasized ones in, would be four before Asr, four before Isha, and four after Isha, and six after Maghrib with three sets of salams. You know, two, four, six, um, but the sunnah of Maghrib, after Maghrib, the regular two rakahs, that could be counted as one of the three sets. Now these are non-emphasized sunnahs. So if someone is doing 
these in this list, but they're not doing these, they're not seen as sinful for persistently or just leaving them, not doing them. These are the ones that, that are highly emphasized in this slide, not these. Then you have others which are non-emphasized recommended sunnah prayers. The two greetings, the two rak'ahs uh, greeting the masjid, tahiyyatul masjid, before sitting down in any time in which the prayer is not disliked. You come into the masjid, it is a sunnah, that you pray the two rak'ahs before sitting down. Two rak'ahs after wudu, before your limbs dry. Who is the one from whom we received this prayer? Sayyiduna Bilal. And this is something he did of his own accord. And the Prophet ﷺ had the vision hearing his footsteps in Jannah, and this was approved. We also have the four to twelve rak'ahs of duha prayer. And duha is, we call this the forenoon. So technically, duha is when the sun rises to the point where the heat on the ground is enough for the camels to get up. So it really depends on where you are, but that's, you could say, 9.30 to 10 o'clock. Uh, maybe earlier. Uh, also, any nafil or voluntary prayer, the istikhara prayer, the prayer of need, salatul hajjah, which is two rak'ahs followed by a dua for your need, uh, your night prayer before the two days of Eid, night prayer in the last ten nights of Ramadan, and Tarawih is actually an emphasized sunnah. That's not in the previous list. We're looking at just daily prayers. But yes, Tarawih is emphasized sunnah. Number nine, the night prayer in the first ten nights of Dhul-Hijjah. And lastly, prayer at night in the 15th of Sha'ban. So these are non-emphasized sunnah prayers. So what time do we have? Okay, eight minutes. Should we venture into this or not? The Imam Ratib is not here. I'm the Imam Ratib for a while. So we could do this class all the way until 10 if we had to. We're not on the clock. Okay, so we come to the hardest part. And the reason why we'd say it's the hardest is that it requires conceptualizing different ways in which people forget things or omit things or mess things up while in prayer and the various things they have to do to fix those errors. So it is the mercy of Allah Ta'ala that in the Sharia he gave to the Prophet our mistakes have a way of being corrected. The mistakes that we make in prayer, uh, not all, but many of them, if the mistakes are of omission due to forgetfulness or being absent-minded, it's the mercy of Allah that in our sharia we have ways of fixing that without having to stop the prayer and start all over. There are cases where a person might mess up so badly that they do have to start over, in which the prayer becomes invalid and they start over again. But in many of these scenarios, one does not start their prayer over from scratch. They do the two prostrations of forgetfulness at the very end. Now, if you see this picture, 
in the introduction to this slide. I'm not sure where this comes from, but it's online. It's one of these memes, but this is kind of how people feel when they're standing in the third or fourth rakah and they're not sure, is it the third, the fourth, the fifth, where are they? And they're trying to figure out what rakah they're on. So they're, they're going back in their mind thinking about the previous movements. You actually have to be careful when that happens because the, the fuqaha say, if you are in the prayer and you're a little stuck and confused about where you are and what rakah you're on, you may try to recall what rakah you're on by thinking about it, but you shouldn't stop dhikr while you're in prayer just to do that mental operation. So in other words, you shouldn't be like the person in this meme where you're just not doing anything, just thinking for an extended period of time, trying to figure out, okay, was that... Mm -hmm. You need to be engaged in dhikr or recitation of the Qur'an. And if while you're doing that, in the back of your mind, you're trying to recall where you were, that's fine. But this is how a lot of people feel when they get stuck in the prayer and they're not sure what rakah they're on. So we need to learn what to do when we find ourselves in that situation. How do we remedy it and fix the salat? And the way we remedy it is through what is called sajdatu sahu or sajdatay as-sahu, the two process. So the fuqaha say that if a person out of forgetfulness or inattentiveness omits one or more obligations of the prayer, the wajibat, he or she must perform two prostrations along with an extra tashahud and two salams. So by saying obligations, what are we excluding here? We're excluding the sunnas or the adab or those kinds of things. We're only looking at the wajibat. If one or more of the wajibat of prayer that we've covered are omitted in, out of forgetfulness, a person has to do these prostrations of forgetfulness. For example, a person performs an extra pillar. You know, it should be once, they do it twice. Such as bowing twice in a single rak'ah. Uh, in all my years as a Muslim, I can't say I've ever seen that, where a person goes, into Rukur, Allahu Akbar, Samir Allahu Riman Hamida, Allahu Akbar, into Rukur again. And then Samir Allahu Riman Hamida a second. I've never seen that. But if someone did that, that would be adding an extra pillar. So that would be one thing. Could be forgetting to recite the Fatiha, or at least three verses, or its equivalent after the Fatiha or rising to the third rak'ah after having forgotten to sit for the first tashahud. Uh, I believe that most cases are the third. Most people who have to make the prostration of forgetfulness are, it's because they are confused about what rak'ah they're on. Sometimes they only remember when they're in the fourth rak'ah and they realize, wait a minute, I didn't sit for the tashahud, or the third rakah, they remember it. Sometimes they remember that they didn't sit for the tashahud 
as they're halfway up into the standing for the third. Sometimes it's after they're standing erect. People remember at different times, but I believe that most case, in most cases, people forget what rakah they're on, and that's the cause for their prostration of forgetfulness. So it doesn't really matter if you're adding or omitting the obligation. That would require the prostration of forgetfulness. So how do you do it, and what are the scenarios? So let's say you are praying dhuhr. You're in the second rak'ah, in the sajda, and instead of sitting up to go into tashahud, you rise all the way back up into the third rak'ah. What did you miss? The tashahud. Is the tashahud an obligation? Yes. Therefore, what do you do? You have to make the prostration of forgetfulness. Is that someone's device? Okay, so how do you do it? So you remembered. You're standing in the third rakah and you say to yourself, Oh, I forgot the tashahud. What do you do? Well, you continue your prayer. You finish that third rakah. You get up. You finish your fourth. You go into that tashahud in the fourth rakah. You do your tashahud as normal, and then you give your salams to the right. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. And then you go into sajda. Allahu Akbar. You do your dhikr. You rise into sitting again. Allahu Akbar. You go back into sajda. Allahu Akbar. You do your dhikr. How many sajdas? There's a two. Allahu Akbar. Now you're sitting again. You're sitting again. Now in that sitting, you do the tashahud over again. You do it over again. And after that, you do your salawat, you do your dua closing, and then assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, on both right and the left. And your prayer is done. You've done the two prostrations of forgetfulness. You've mended the prayer due to having forgotten an obligation. That is the basic way to do it in the Hanafi school. Now the Maliki school, I know I've confused some people doing it that in the Maliki way, it's a little different, but that's the basic way you do it. If all we struggled with was sometimes missing the tashahud, forgetting to sit in the second rak'ah, then this would be pretty easy. But there are some details and scenarios that we have to learn because there's all sorts of ways in which people can forget or things that may arise in the prayer. And often things get very confusing. I, I heard of a case where there was an imam. He was praying dhuhr. Half of the jama'ah, they, they were there for the first takbir and they're behind the imam. As they are praying behind the imam, you have another group of people who came in the second rakah. The Imam, he rises and group two who came late think that he's 
sorry, group one, they think that he's rising for a fifth rakah, and they're saying subhanallah, and they're not standing. Group two who came late, for, as far as they're concerned, it's the third rakah. They don't know. And there's this ensuing confusion because one group is standing, the other one's sitting, and after the prayer is over, the imam's confused, those who were there in the beginning are confused, the second group, they're confused, and they're all wondering, what should we have done? And you know, these kind of scenarios do happen from time to time. I know one imam who had a situation like this. It was so confusing because the people who came and then where he forgot, and then as he was trying to self-correct based on people saying, SubhanAllah, he, he forgot something else. And at the end, he just gave the salam and said, let's start over again, you know? And sometimes that's best. So let's look at some scenarios. All right, um, and, and the, you have these slides. So if this is, you picture yourself in the masjid or picture yourself praying and this happens to you. And you, you have to go over the examples a few times to have the tasawwur, the conceptualization. If one begins to rise from sitting for the third rak'ah in a three or four rak'ah prayer, and then realizes he has not performed the first sitting he should return to his sitting position. Okay? This is, okay, the person is in dhuhr. They're in sajda. They rise. They should be sitting for their tashahud, shouldn't they? They rise briefly and they stand up. But as they're getting back up, they're realizing that they forgot. This, you should return to the sitting position. Because you, you haven't fully stood up, have you? You should return to that sitting position and continue with your tashahud. And this is wajib as long as you haven't fully stood up. If his knees were still bent when recalling and sitting back down, he doesn't do the prostration of forgetfulness. Meaning, it's a kind of grace period for you to catch yourself. And here I am, I'm describing this to you. It's better if I was to demonstrate where I, I sit on the ground and I get off from sajda and I rise just slightly. You know, you're just getting up and you're realizing that you didn't do tashahud. So you go right back down. If you catch yourself in that moment, that's something of a grace period. So you didn't fully rise, you're fine. Just go right back to where you, in the sitting position where you should have been. Do your tashahud, continue your prayer, finish it, and there's no need to do the prostration of forgetfulness. Right? But if you are closer to standing than sitting, when you remember this, you're not going to go all the way back up standing. You're still going to go back down sitting. But because there's no grace period, you've gone beyond, you're closer to standing than sitting, you still go back to sitting. But at the end of that prayer, you're going to do the two prostrations. So you have that short grace period if you just catch yourself in the beginning, where you can just quickly sit back down. But if you're halfway and you're closer to standing, and then you're, oh, you still have to go back to the sitting position. However, you got to do the subject of self, the prostration of forgetfulness. Uh, does that example make sense? Can you, you can conceptualize that, right? Uh, just 
think about the person who catches themselves. If one forgot to sit for the final tashahud and was getting back up, making it into a fifth rak'ah, the same rule applies as long as he has not prostrated. Meaning, if he catches himself, he can go back, right, and just finish that out. But if he goes back, if he did a prostration in the fifth rakah, I mean, if he goes all the way up and he's gone that far, then his fault of the prayer is invalidated, and that prayer becomes a nafil, a voluntary prayer. And as a voluntary prayer, this is where it gets interesting. So he's prayed for rakahs of dhuhr. He's in the tashahud, or maybe he's not. He's in the fourth rakah, the dhuhr. He stands back up. This is now the fifth rakah. If, if he's standing back up and he's completed it to the point of going to sajda, guess what? That dhuhr does not count anymore. It counts as a nafil, a voluntary prayer. But it's five rakahs. Does that mean that in the fifth rakah he's going to be in tashahud and then give the salams? No. He's going to stand back up and do a sixth rakah because it's not a witter prayer. Right? It's going to be even. So it's going to be two, four, six. So he's doing it like this. If he did the prostration in the fifth rakah, the fourth prayer is invalidated and it becomes voluntary. He should then add another rakah such that the extra two constitute an additional voluntary prayer. So four nafil and then two added to that. And after this, he's going to have to pray dhuhr all over again. Right? If, if you did it in Maghrib, then it's, then it's four and he's not adding. Right? So they only mentioned this for the prayer that would end with uh, five. Right? Or, or end with three. Right? So odd numbers. If it's Maghrib and it's a fourth rakah, they finish that out. The prayers become nafil. They do the salams and they pray Maghrib over again properly. It's nafil. It's not. It's not. No. You just. You just do your thing. Uh, you finish it out and then you go into the do the the fard. If someone needed to do sajda to sahu and forgot, okay, this is a good one. So, let's say you're praying dhuhr, you get up for the third rakah and you realize you forgot to do the tashahud. So, you know in the back of your mind that you forgot this and that you have to do the prostration of forgetfulness after you finish your fourth rakah. You go into the fourth rakah, you're in tashahud and you just give the full salams. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. And you forgot to do the sajda to sahu. So you forgot the tashahud in the second rakah. And you forgot the prostration for forgetting. So you're forgetting that too. What do you do? Well, it depends. What does it depend on? It depends on you. It depends on what you are doing or not doing immediately after the prayer. So if you forgot to do those and you remember right after the salams, you can go and do them as long as 
you haven't gone and done anything that would affect the validity of the prayer, such as talking or eating. So this is the person who, they're praying dhuhr, they miss the tashahud, they go into the fourth rak'ah, they're supposed to do the sajda to sahu, but they forget and give the full salams. Five seconds later, as they're sitting there in dhikr, they remember, oh, I didn't do that. In that moment, they can just go Allahu Akbar and do the two prostrations, the tashahud, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, and uh, they're fine, alhamdulillah. Because between the ending of the prayer and remembering and doing the prostration of forgetfulness, nothing occurred in between those two things that would have invalidated the prayer if they were praying, such as talking to someone or eating or drinking, because it was just dhikr. On the other hand, if they prayed dhuhr, forgot the shahud, forgot the prostration of forgetfulness, gave the full salams, and then they got up and ate a sandwich or just a chip and then they remembered, can they go and do the two prostrations? No. Because between the prayer and those prostrations, they engaged in something that would have invalidated the prayer if they were praying. So they... In, in their case, they can't do that. But what do they do? Do they have to pray over again? No, they don't. If they were omitted and remembered within the prayer time, they can make up the prayer. If it was later that they remembered, there's nothing to do, right? This is basically in that moment, if you remember, you have to attend to it. If it's happening later on, there's nothing for you to do. So, if they were omitted, the prostration of forgetfulness, and remembered later within the prayer time, yeah, make up the prayer. If you speak or eat in the time, like there, the sajda to sahu is excused. So there's some confusing issues here, and the more details you go into, the more confusing it gets, because there's just lots of scenarios where we could forget. And between praying by yourself or praying behind an imam, and the imam forgetting and being corrected and either listening or not listening, adding a fifth rak'ah, do you follow him or do you stay still? There's lots of little details like this that come up. Uh, and then there's the issue of doubts. Yeah, you had a question? Would walking away count as something that would break the prayer? Mm. You didn't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. If, you, if it constitutes movement, but you're not praying Right, you're not eating or drinking or talking, just movement. I, I don't know. Now, something that comes up in relation to this is the issue of doubt. Sometimes you know very clearly that you forgot to do the tashahud, but sometimes you get up and you have this uneasy sense that you forgot something, but you're unsure. Or you're not sure, did I pray four rak'ahs or three? What rak'ah am I on? Now, when we say doubt, what we mean is it's kind of an even 50-50 split. Maybe I'm on the third rak'ah, maybe I'm on the fourth. It could be either way, 50-50, I don't know. If you have a doubt, which is a 50-50 split, without any inclination towards one or the other while you're in prayer, meaning not after the salams, uh, or while sitting, uh, at the end long enough to recite tashahud, then 
the, the Hanafi school, they say that if this is the first time it's ever happened to you, as a, as a young person probably, then you make the prayer up, you start over again. But if it's happened more than once, then you have to basically reach a determination, trying your best at Taharri, to try your best to reach a uh, determination about what rakah you're on. And to reach that determination, you're just not sure, is it three, is it four? You should build upon the prayer as your basis. You, this is al-bina. So just assume that it's the minimal number. Assume, if you're not sure if it's four or three, assume it's three. Assume it's less. That's what they say. So if you're not certain, assume the lower number and perform a sitting after each rak'ah, since any of them could be the even rak'ah, and then do such to the sahu. I tell you, this is a lot more complicated in the Hanafi school than it is for others. Because the way they're describing it is, you get up, let's say you're praying dhuhr, and you get up in, you're not sure, is this the third rak'ah or the fourth rak'ah? You have no idea. And you're thinking, what's the most likely case? You're not leaning to one or the other. Then you're going to do bina. You're going to say, okay, I assume it's the third rakah. Okay. But could it be the fourth? Could be. You're, you're not sure anymore. It could be. This means that it could be the fourth. Uh, the next rakah could be the fourth. Uh, if you already prayed four rakahs, the next rakah could be the fifth, right? So they say that you perform a sitting after each rakah of, this, of these rakahs that you're in doubt regarding. Because that rakah could have been the even rakah and you're not aware. So you do all of that and then you do the sajd at the end. If this is the tougher one. It's like you prayed, you're not sure, you could be in the third, you could be in the fourth, you don't know. So you assume it's the third. So the next one you're going into is the fourth. But it might be the fifth. You're just not sure. So you do the tashahud. You get back up. Right, depending on the rakah. You've got to make sure you're praying four, obviously, if it's dhuhr. Right, you're not going to be praying five on purpose. So this is where it gets confusing and you're doing the math in your head. But if you are unsure, if it's even or odd, you're just going to be doing the tashahud and getting back up for each of those. Uh, and I pray that that never happens to any of you. But this is what they discuss in the books of fiqh. Uh, remember what we said before. Uh, fiqh, uh, as a science, is addressing all sorts of human possibilities. Uh, all sorts of scenarios, even outrageous ones, that are very unlikely to happen in our own life. Uh, hopefully... That won't happen to you. And hopefully, if it does happen to you, it's a fairly simple case of you remembering as you're getting up in the Thurraqah that you forgot the Tashahud uh, or you forgot to recite something and then you can fix it with the prostration of forgetfulness at the end. Um, so is it allowed to uh, complete the prayer if, you, if you're in doubt? Mm -hmm. Just pray again all over again. If you get so confused to where nothing really makes sense anymore, then you can do this, yeah. And I think that would be a more easier solution. 
Okay, so next class. We, we got through the hard stuff now. Um, and for the test, I'm just going to ask you the basic stuff, the stuff that most people face, not the scenarios. Uh, next class, inshallah, prostration of uh, recitation, it's very easy. Qada, we'll talk about that, making up missed prayers. Uh, the Friday prayer, the Eid prayers, the Janazah prayer, a little bit about burial is included there. And you know, after that, it's a few miscellaneous things, and we'll have our test. Wallahu rasulu ala masallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. I have a question. Sure. Sometimes you can hear whenever they use the prostration, but they do it right at the very end and they don't sandwich it between the two sandwiches. So that's not correct. You mean like the, the they're doing a salamu alaykum and then they go? No, they just say it at the very end and they do the salamu At the end? I mean, that would be the Shafi'i way, I think. And in the, in the Madiki way, we have two prostrations before any salam at all. And then we have some cases where it's the two prostrations after the salams. It depends on whether you're adding something or whether you, for, you omitted something. They make a distinction.